he's a creator, an innovator. His passion is why we listen. His knowledge is why we want to be educated. He really has spent his life focusing on people that make excuses. With a man who has turned around over 800 bars throughout the world, Bar Rescue's John Taffer. If you do tomorrow what you did today, you will get tomorrow what you got today. Hello. <laughs> I'm excited about this one, Corey. I'm John Taffer. This is my No Excuses podcast, and it is the week before Christmas. Man, the year is over. It is the week before Christmas. And no bar rescue is on television. I'm getting my ass kicked. People are not, freaking out. <laughs> it's unbelievable what's going on. So bar rescue always takes a break during football. We do it every year. <laughs> Calm down, everybody. <laughs> unbelievable. So we'll be back in February. But what we always do, and it's actually a big compliment from the network, they feel that bar rescue is such a powerful asset that they don't want to burn that asset against football and uh, force you to come back and watch it on DVR. So it's uh, uh, flattering that we take a break every year, but don't worry, we'll be back in February. We got 28 new episodes that we're making next year, and I think we have 12 in a can that we haven't aired. So we're sitting on about 40 episodes, which will make for a pretty good year. You know what's also amazing, Corey? You know, when we finished last season, I really believe, and I'm not saying this because this is my podcast. Uh, I, I, I always speak the truth. The last five episodes we did last season when we wrapped up might have been the five best bar rescues I think we've ever done. Yeah, I can agree with that. It was amazing. Well, you yeah. got to see them in advance. Right. So uh, nobody's seen them yet. But, man, I'm looking forward to February because I think it's our best season ever. Yeah. You know, I wanted to do something special in December. We've been doing this. This is our third uh, episode of, of doing these lookbacks, but you know, over the past year and a half, we've done about seventy nine episode, uh, seventy nine interviews on this show, and it's amazing to do a podcast like this. Not only do I get to talk to all of you with audience call ins and, and and interact with with you, but I get to interact with amazing people on this podcast. And you know, when I think about the athletes, the actors, the comics the medical professionals, the politicians, the Vegas performers, the, 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 the business leaders that have all been on this podcast. It's amazing what I've learned, Corey, over these 79 weeks of doing this with all these guests. Oh, yeah, guests. me too. Well, you know, at the end of the year, those of you who know me well know I, I always love to be inspirational. I always like to send some type of a positive message <laughs> when I'm not throwing food. <laughs> but so this is a very special episode. So are the last two. So for this series of podcasts in December, we wanted to do not a clip show, but a look back at some of the most inspirational and meaningful meaningful interviews that we've done in the past year and a half. So these are not one sentence of one person, another sentence of another. This is a very special show where we're taking actual moments, several moments or clips from complete interviews uh, uh, to really highlight inspirational and motivational aspects of the things that I've learned as we've gone down this podcast journey together this past year and a half. My first guest is not only hysterical, this guy was a teacher, a school teacher, who became a comic and is one of the most successful comics in America right now. His story was really a powerful story because it was a story of changing one's life from one career into another career. And as one who was a musician, and I was a musician when I was a kid, when I went on stage, I could always hide behind my drum set or hide behind an instrument. When you're a comedian, there's no hiding, Corey. You're standing there. That light is on you. The microphone's in front of you. Right. It's just you, buddy. It's like having your pants down. 
Well, Bill Engvill is a master comedian. You all know who he is. We've all seen him on television, heard him on radio, seen him in sitcoms and in comedy specials. Bill started as a school teacher and somehow found the courage to chase his dream and change his entire life midstream. It's an incredibly motivational and inspirational story to hear those things. Now me, I went into the television business late in my life. I had never done that before. So, so many of us go down the path of life that we started with because we think we can't make change, but you can. You can change your entire career trajectory. You can change your direction. People go to college in the middle of their lives. I launched a television career in the middle of my lives. The point is that whatever you're doing, you can change it if you want to. Whatever is missing from your life, you can find it. Bill did. So transition, growth, having the courage to take the steps that will really turn your life around, that's powerful stuff. And that's why I wanted you to listen to Bill today. Take a listen to this interview for a few minutes. Well, basically, I was in college to be a teacher, uh, but I had discovered women and beer, so studies went out the window. Uh, <laughs> so because the reason I, I like kids, uh, enjoy working with them, uh, and I think that teachers who made learning fun, you can remember by name as far back as your schooling goes. Uh, and so I always thought that, you know, teachers were entertainers in their own right, but college wasn't working out. And uh, so it uh, it kind of just uh, – so I went back to Dallas and uh, became a, a DJ basically in a nightclub. And – they opened up a comedy club down the road and the bouncer at our club, who was a friend of mine asked if I wanted to go watch an amateur night. And I said, yeah, you know, let's go watch some people suck. And, uh, so we went down there and a couple rounds of liquid encouragement went through us. And the next thing I knew they had talked me into going on stage and all I, I had no act. All I did was talk about, you know, what it was like being a DJ and some funny stories. Cause I, you know, we've always had comedy around our house. My dad always had, uh, you know, the button down mind of Bob Newhart albums. And I, uh, I had bought Steve Martin's let get, let's get small album, which was oh, really the album that kind of, I guess you could say sparked the interest because, but I didn't think you could make a living at it. But you've so, always thought uh, of comedy that's about life. So even back then in your first performance, you just went back and told stories and relatable things of your life. Yeah, which is basically what I do forty years later. <laughs> so, uh, yep, no, that's uh, that was, amazing. That was the uh, that was the seed that got planted, and uh, I just fell in love with it. I mean, people were laughing and they were having a good time, and I thought, well, this would be. And basically, I, I got to be honest with you, man. At that point in my career, my three job uh, requirements were work at night, drink on the job, and sleep in late. So, you, not only did DJ and fill that, but comedy also filled that. Floyd. So I got hired as the MC at this comedy club. And basically my job was to pick the comics up at the airport on Monday, take them back to the airport the next Monday. And in between, I would uh, MC the show. So I got to learn from the best, you know, guys like Shanling and Leno yeah. and Seinfeld and these guys. Uh, and so, so I learned how to construct an act. And, right. and basically almost I was there for two and a half sense. years. Yeah. The, uh, I was just, yeah, basically all I was was a warm-up guy, but because I had a home club and I was really one of two guys doing it in Dallas at that time, full time, 
uh, I got to work on my act. So I was there, like I said, for two and a half years. And so by the time I left to go on the road, I already had 45 to 60 minutes of material. Wow. So when you, when you went back to your wife, Gail, and said, listen, I want to move to L.A. and become a comedian, how did she react to that? You know, uh, bless her heart. She's always supported what I've done. I mean, I'm sure there was times in her life that she thought, what the hell are we doing here? I know one uh, instance for sure. When we finally got out to L.A., uh, I was such an idiot. I thought if you wanted to be an actor, you just called yourself an actor. Uh, I didn't realize you need to go to class and learn the skill. And so we moved out to L.A. and she was eight months pregnant. And I got my first audition. And I said, here, read this with me. And so we read it a couple of times. And I said, I'm ready. And I found this out years later that after I left the house, she just sat down the back porch and started crying. And I said, why? And she said, because we lived in a house we couldn't afford. I'm eight months pregnant and you couldn't act your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> wow. Well, was that a pair of jokers? Way, she got me to go to classes. Wow. Was that a pair of jokers, the first gig? Uh, that, was, that, that wasn't my first acting gig, but it was probably, uh, you know, I had done, uh, you know, some evening at the improvs and stuff like that. And then Para Jokers uh, called me, and I had worked with Rosie before, and so that I really that was really a, uh, a great show for me to do because it got me. Uh, it was great training for doing the Tonight Show. Yeah, it sure was. The two of you were good together too. You had a great a magnetic together. You know, I used to run the Troubadour in the late seventies, early eighties back then, and I used to go hang at the comedy store back then. And I was friends with the manager and Paulie and Mitzi, and I would hang there all the time. And I always found it remarkable, Bill, the difference between the scene at a music club versus a comedy club, and how different the backstage environment is, and the relationship between the artists is. And it, there's they have nothing in common with each other. And uh, uh, so being an MC in that comedy club environment almost makes you culturally one of them because of the way you interact so much with each other, which bands and musicians don't typically do to that level. Uh, uh, and years ago, I was on Buddy Hackett's board of his charity, and he was one of my dearest friends. Of course, you know, Buddy. And, and, right. uh, and Buddy talked me into doing five minutes at the comedy store. And it was the most horrifying five minutes of my life. So what <laughs> I did is I did five minutes of his jokes. Yeah, it can be pretty uh, daunting uh, the first time you go on stage. Uh, I mean, I was that way the first time I went on stage in L.A. because, you know, that's where all the big boys hung out. I mean, you might go up to the improv and be following Robin Williams, uh, you know, Gary Shanley, all these guys. You know, the lineup was just and so you, you kind of, it was like jumping into the deep end of the pool. You either going to swim or you're going to sink. And, you know, it took me a little while to get my chops, but, uh, eventually I figured it out and, you know, uh, you're given five to seven minutes. And so there's not a lot of time for just messing around. You got to get right to the jokes. And, uh, it was, uh, I've met, you know, I gotta tell you though, I've never had what I would call the typical career, uh, because in Dallas, like I said, I was only one of two people doing it. So I got all the stage time. Uh, and then when I went to LA and I went to the improv, you know, I was getting 1245, 1am, 1230 sets. And one night Bud was there and I walked up and I said, Bud, I really appreciate the the spots. I said, but I've got a, a newborn baby at home and I really can't be coming out at 1230 at night. And he goes, okay. Next thing I knew I was getting 830, 845 sets. And the other comics were like, 
how'd you get those? And I go, I just ask him, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, because, but that's just the way I've always been my whole life is like, I'm not, you know, if I got a problem, I go to whoever I think can solve the problem and we talk it out and sure enough, Freeman helped me out immensely. Yeah. But Freeman was like everybody's father too, back in those days, you know, he was so centered to the business uh, and the improv was so important back in those days. You know, it it was a stepping stone uh, 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 to, to greater things back then. That was an amazing time. So what I also found fascinating about you is Bill, you, you don't say no to freaking anything, which is unbelievable. If it's good, you'll do it. So you've done game shows and you did one, I think one of the most impressive shows I've ever seen. Cause I have several other friends that have done it. How hard was dancing with the stars? Uh, it was, uh, it was more brutal than I thought. Uh, you know, and actually, when uh, when I got the initial call, I was going to turn it down uh, because my first thought was, oh, God, is that where my career has gone now? Um, <laughs> but my wife said, you know what? It's seen by a lot of people. So I agreed to do it and uh, got to the finals. But I will be honest with you, the only reason I got to the finals is not because of my dancing ability. It was just because I figured out what it was. It was a popularity contest. I mean, it wasn't literally a dance competition because if it was, none of us would have been asked to do it. But what what I stumbled upon was that here I was, 57 years old, dancing with this 24-year-old British bombshell. (laughs) And then at the end of the dance, I'd run over and kiss this 50-year-old woman who was my wife. And every woman in America went, see, why can't people just do this, you know? It's like, and and I was grateful that Emma's age and my age were so far apart because it became more of a dad daughter kind of thing, yeah. as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, being where there's somebody go, ooh, wonder what's going on here. But yeah, I uh, if I had to do it again, I would do it completely different. You know what's amazing is is knowing I was going to talk to you today. I looked at some clips last night, and you were good, man. You got some moves. Did you work really well, hard? I, at I will it? tell you, did you I did work things? hard at it. Uh, you know, you were. Uh, as I tell my audience, uh, by the time I got done, I added up my time on that dance floor and I realized I had just danced six hours a day, seven days a week for 13 weeks without a day off. And I said, you have to understand some guys that are 57 years old are not designed to dance six hours a day, seven days a week. We're designed to dance once a year drunk at a wedding, you know, uh, but it was, I will tell you this, it was the best workout I've ever had in my life. I bet we aching at night when you got home. Oh, God, you have no idea. I literally would just come home and, and fall into bed fully dressed. Courage. That's what I'd say about Bill. The courage to change careers, the courage to chase a dream, the courage to stand on stage, even when you tell a lousy joke. Could you imagine bombing, Corey? Oh, no. You're on stage, you tell a bad joke, boo, another yeah. bad joke, oh, you wind up with five, six in a row. You're losing it, they're booing, they're starting to walk out of the room, it's unraveling. And you still have the courage to get on that stage the next night. That's Bill Engvall. And that's why I wanted you to listen to that interview. If you think there's something about your life that you can't change, that is bullshit. Because you can change it. It's just desire, will, conviction, and everything changes. We'll be right back. Don't shut down this podcast. John Taffer will be right back. 
Use BetDSI's live betting platform where you can watch all the events and even bet all the games till the final whistle. And new members get a 100% bonus match using promo code TAFFER101. That's double your money to start winning today. So why would you choose BetDSI? First of all, it's been paying winners for 20 years. It's a top-rated site, and you can use your sports knowledge to make some extra cash this week. It is a really friendly interface. It's got a very cool mobile site, and most important, it's got the fastest payouts in the industry. So BetDSI offers options for everything. You can bet on NFL, NBA, NHL, boxing, and all other major sports, politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. So try betting at BetDSI where you can bet on games from start to finish, every play, every minute until the end. And remember, new members get a 100% bonus match using promo code TAFFER101. That's double your money to start winning today. Again, go to BetDSI.com and use promo code TAFFER101 to get this limited-time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash. Guys, it's only a game till you bet at BetDSI. So we've got a new technology that allows you to communicate directly with the show, and you can do that at anchor.fm slash john-taffer-no-excuses. I'm going to give it to you again because it's really cool to interact with the show using it. It's anchor.fm slash john-taffer-no-excuses. And if that's too complicated for you, which I know it is for some of you, <laughs> then you can just send the note to podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com. Either way, guys, make sure you reach out to me because I'd love to hear from you. This is no excuses. You know, we all have things that we have to overcome in life. You know, there's that person who bites their nails and they have to stop biting their nails. I'm being obvious. The guy picks his nose. He's got to stop picking his nose. When you pick your nose for 20 years, it's no easy. It's not so easy to stop, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> not that I've had that problem myself. But the fact of the matter is overcoming the things that, that, that hold us back in life or cause us not to enjoy ourselves or achieve our objectives are powerful. They hold us back. And those of us who can overcome our weaknesses, overcome our fears, are the ones that typically become the most successful. Think about this. All of us have moments in life, these defining moments, when either we step up and overcome a fear, overcome not having something, overcome having a conflict with someone. Moments when we're almost surprised by our ability to overcome. Well, this next comedian was a nervous wreck. I mean, Corey, this guy was terrified to get on stage. Right. I mean, he was writing jokes for other people because he didn't even want to go and tell his own jokes. That's, that's how terrified right. Dennis was. So think about this. He's terrified, shaking, sweating in his palms. His crotch is sweating, for Christ's sakes. He's terrified up there. But the next day, he does another engagement and books another gig, and the next day, another one. What kind of a nutcase would do that to himself? Think about that. It's almost like if you were terrified of water, so you drop yourself in a pool every day, Corey, and you get out of the pool, and you're crying, and you're hysterical, and you're shaking, and you're completely overcome with nerves and pressure, and then the next day, you do it again, and the next day, you do it again. That's a powerful personality to do that. Think about how much stronger we would all be if we could do that, if we could force ourselves to be stronger at what we're weak at now, if we could force ourselves 
to overcome. Dennis Miller is a great comedian, great linguist, by the way, uses great language, has an intelligent style of comedy. Dennis Miller was terrified to tell a freaking joke when he first started in his business. He could write them, but he couldn't freaking tell them. Now look at him. He's been a successful comedian, movie star, writer for years. We all know the name Dennis Miller. Dennis overcame. Dennis learned how to overcome. And when Dennis overcame, he won. His entire life changed. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. All of us have something we can overcome. All of us have something we can conquer, we can change, we can grow, we can manipulate or massage within ourselves to make something better, whether it's personal, business, family. All of us have things to overcome. Those of us who consciously try to overcome them and do now can put that aside and go on with our lives without that weakness. Dennis did that. And it's a powerful story. That's why I wanted you to listen to Dennis Miller today. Here we go. And I was never a very bodacious young man, but I remember writing some jokes for some people who had come through Pittsburgh. And then I saw one of the comedians and I, you know, I won't say that's unimportant, but he did it on the tonight show. And I remember Johnny Carson pounding the desk and I was sitting in a $60 a month apartment with a hot plate to cook on watching somebody with an idea of mine that I had sold them. It was nothing more than that, but I do remember mm -hmm. thinking, well, I'm going to have to force feed myself this, uh, this uh, presenter thing because I, I don't have this sort of ego to sit out here and broke, bereft, and, uh, you know, <laughs> unsated and watch other people make Johnny Carson laugh with things I thought of. So that's when I started doing comedy. And at first I was just a little... Vomitous, as a lot of people are. It's an unnatural act, but uh, that didn't last all that long. I don't want to make it too dramatic. It's uh, At some point, you think uh, it's not Vietnam. You know, shut up, tell the jokes. You know, it's I went through that in TV. The first few episodes of Bar Rescue, I puked before I went on stage. And I know Ozzy did that before he would go on stage years ago. It's interesting that you, you would have a love for something that was so difficult for you to do in the beginning. And it speaks so much to, to passion overcoming one's ability at that moment. Well, I, I don't want to make that more than it is. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've always approached comedy as a job. I, I don't have a the burning thing that some people do. I just did did know as I watched another person say something, I thought, well, I guess I have to be the conduit because that's rankling me. But I, I've never been one of these kids who was 12 years old and doing hell's a popping in the basement at the holidays and shit like that. You know, it's, uh, I like to write jokes and I had to become the guy to tell them. And uh, as far as uh, stand up goes, I'm fond of it. I've had a great uh, good fortune with it, but uh, I, I never. I didn't burn to do it like some people, but it is a fun <laughs> job. When did you find that you were becoming political in your humor? Um, well, once you're doing Saturday Night Live Weekend Update, you know, people always think that it was some, um, that's your job. You know, if you want to go in and say, I'd rather not do political humor, you can, they'll say, okay, great, don't do the news. So a bit of it then, and then I'd, uh, you know, then you become known as a current topic uh, you know, a topical comedian. So I just pulled on that thread. I'm I'm always fascinated when people talk about how they'd like to be known by the public. I always I I was shocked that anybody cared. So when I found a hook, I just 
uh, stayed with it. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but then all of a sudden people said, well, he does funny jokes about the events in the news. I started doing it. I think the first time I was probably uh, didn't betray, you know, that I was completely liberal, and I've never been completely liberal. I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally, and at least as far as the war on terror, stuff like that goes, I'm conservative. I remember they made fun of James Stockdale when Ross mm-hmm. Perot picked him as his VP, and I remember I didn't like that by liberals. I thought that they were acting fast and loose with a man who, quite frankly, we were lucky to have run as a vice president. I don't care if he's bad on TV. TV's crap. So yep. I remember when they started making fun of him, I thought that, uh, this the liberal room might be getting a little too hip for me. It's interesting. So you you made that shift. You almost sound a little like Charles Krauthammer, who made the shift at about the same time in his life. But there's a quote here that you said that I was just hysterical when I read it. When you wrote, I don't respect Bill Clinton. And I love this quote that you gave. Clinton's my age. I know how full of shit I am. So I look at him and think, I know you. You're the guy who used to tap the keg. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh listen I'm I might excoriate other people but I'm cruel myself too and I know how I've bullshitted my way through life not lying about core values but acting brassier than I am at times and acting more demure than I am at times and it's all a negotiation through a uh, you know, uh, a sargasso a minefield adult life, especially when you choose to become an entertainer. So when I looked at Clinton, I used to always think, oh, I know this guy, for God's sake, he is completely full of it. But then I had to at least, in all fairness, put the coat on. He's as full of it as I am. Well, my next guest, Joe Coy, is, is not only a great comedian, but a restaurant owner, entrepreneur, Really exciting guy. And I've learned this in my life. You know, reality TV that fails is typically fake. And reality TV that succeeds is typically not fake. Now, there are exceptions to that rules, but generally it's true. Now, my show, of course, is not fake. And when you think about the fact that, that, that authenticity is so important to all of us, If I was a different person on this podcast and a different person when you met me, and then you go to Taffer's Tavern, Corey, and that's a different personality again. Right. And then you go to the mixology product, and that's a different personality again. If I wasn't authentic to myself, I don't think I'd be successful. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think by being true to myself, particularly on TV, and by being authentic, people believe I'm being honest with them, and people trust who I am, because I am that all the time, because it's true. I am authentic. Well, Joe Coy figured that out at a very young age. He figured out being himself was his greatest asset. So everything that he's done in his life, he based around being himself. Other people changed themselves to match their lives. Joe Coy changed his life to match himself. How cool was that, Corey, when you think about it? Right, yeah, that was a good little analogy. That's a hell of a format for happiness, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. If you can build your life around who you truly are, then every day becomes amazingly wonderful. Think about that. So when you think about the people we've spoken to today, Bill, the master of changing his life from teacher to comic, Dennis, the master of overcoming his fears and his nerves to do something that was so unnatural to him and then eventually mastering it. And Joe Coy learning that the greatest asset he had was himself and being true to himself. These are powerful principles. 
These are principles that can change your life, change your projectile. So would you make a change like Bill did? Or would you overcome something that is so uncomfortable for you that thinking about overcoming it is even difficult? And do you have the courage to really be yourself? Well, Joe did. So let's listen to Joe Coy for a moment, because this is a powerful interview. I went to UNLV for about six, seven months. <laughs> and what did you study? Uh, you know, the basics, you know, just whatever it was that you had to take the electives and stuff like that. Uh, I think my goal was to do something with sports. You know what I mean? I was in the sports, so I don't know. I was thinking about maybe sports medicine. Then I started getting into communications and, you know, then I took speech classes. I was like, whatever could help me. Uh, pursue stand-up, you know, indirectly. I didn't want my mom to know that that was going to be my number one goal. So, ah. and that's how it all 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 happened. Yeah, but so it was but, a cover man, scheme. I'll tell you what. So you went it was basically a cover scheme. Yeah. So you went to college. She's thinking that you're learning. You know, setting yourself up with with your business degrees, and the entire time you you knew you wanted to be a comedian. Oh yeah, I, I knew I knew right when I got to Vegas because I was already calling comedy clubs and pretending to be a comic and trying to get like uh, stage time or or warm up act time or you know what I mean to do do stuff like that or at least trying to get a job inside a comedy club and never seemed to work especially since I was eighteen you know so, so I found myself lying a lot you know what I mean I, yeah. I would make up uh, you know make up. Uh, uh, like well, a resume telling them who I've opened for and stuff like that. But I, I didn't open for anybody at that time. <laughs> That's funny. Producers do that in Hollywood, but the, half of them, the only thing they ever produced was a business card. You know what I mean? They never produced a damn thing. <laughs> so, so yeah. They bullshit us every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you left UNLV and how soon after that was your first comedy gig? Uh, or well, before it? It took about a year. It took about a year to finally get, uh, well, not that long, about, yeah, about close to a year. And then uh, I got on to this competition called, uh, I think it was called The Biggest Fool. And it was a comedy competition for local comics. And uh, I thought in my head I was going to crush it. Man, I, I, I ate it so bad, man. It was the, one of the worst times of my life. <laughs> wow. So you went out there, you thought you were going to hit yeah. a home run, and, 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 and you completely bombed? Oh, bombed so bad, man. It was so bad, yeah. So so it, what did you do after not that? Good. Did you reevaluate uh, if you wanted to be a comedian? How hard did that hit you? You know, I knew, I, I saw an interview with uh, Eddie Murphy, and he, he said that he bombed like his first eight or nine times, you know, and, and and he, and one thing that he said, he just always just loved getting on stage and just keep trying, you know? And so I knew that, you know, if Eddie could bomb, then I can bomb, you know, right. that's, that was my whole mentality. I was like, well, shoot, you know, bombing is what you're supposed to do. So I just had to, you know, it, you had to build up that strength and that courage again, man. It, it, it's hard, man, to go up in front of people, but to and bomb and then like that. Yeah. Yeah. To get rejected as hard as that. And then to go back home and then build up that strength and courage to go do it again, knowing that that's probably going to be the same result again. So how different was rough. the show the next time? Oh, I bombed again. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I, kept, <laughs> I kept bombing. I mean, under different names and different aliases. Like I, I never used uh, my real name and smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but and then, uh, you know, and then I started getting, uh, you know, coffee houses and that's where it all started taking off for me were the coffee houses. So for you, and, and, and I've watched you, uh, uh, Joe, you're really funny, buddy. And you know, I was watching a bunch of Thank YouTube you. videos today. You are just a funny, but you talk so much about the simplicities of life and make them funny. 
Oh, right? thank so you. You're big about looking at all the things around you and, and doing very relatable comedy. Was there some point between those bomb shows and you becoming successful when you started to become maybe more authentic to yourself? Yeah, I think what it was, you know, they always say this when you first start doing stand-up that, uh, you know, you'll find your voice in 10 years. And, and when you first start stand-up, you don't know what that means. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. what are you talking about? I know my voice now. Like, you're very hard-headed. But after you put in your licks and your times and your and you lick your wounds and and you, you've said it, you, you bombed enough and said a bunch of dumb shit. You know what yeah. I mean? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And you start weeding through your 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 little uh, your little uh, diary of stuff that you've done. Then you start to weed it out and realize, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be talking about. Yeah. I get it now. And that's usually right around ten years. And and they're right. Every comic that starts off, you know, I. You know, I heard it and, and I want everyone else to hear it. See me in 10 years because in 10 years, you're going to really, really know what you want to talk about. And once you really know what you want to talk about, then that's when comedy really starts for you. You know, Yeah, you're unbelievably authentic, though. You're just you up there. Oh, thank you, man. I, I really you know, one of the things that I, I, I love about stand up is being able to be vulnerable and, and just tell the truth because the audience knows when you're telling the truth. Right. I mean, they'll laugh with you, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll love who doesn't like to laugh, but they also know when it's not real and when they know it's fake, you know? And I love that about stand up. You know, if you put yourself out there and be very, you know, vulnerable and, 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 and let them know your story, people love to reach and grab a hold of that because then they identify because you're talking about something that they want to say too sometimes. Yeah. Or wish they could. You know? Or wish they and could. Wish they could. Yeah. So what they do is they relate to you. And then, then sometimes it makes them feel good. Like, holy shit, he's laughing about it. Then I can laugh about it. Wow. Joe Coy. Pretty cool, huh, Corey? Yeah, that was great. You know, I wanted this podcast to, to be meaningful and, and to leave some thoughts with us all. And, and you know, it did it for me, man. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about this stuff. Assuming you're not in a place you want to be, if you could change like Bill did, overcome a weakness like Dennis did, or learn how to truly be true to yourself like Joe Coy did, you would be in a better place. I've done it. I've been authentic. I've gone through change, and I've overcome my own fears. You think going on national television is easy? It isn't. You think screaming at people is easy? It isn't. You think throwing food at somebody on national TV is easy? It isn't. It's hard. I had to make a change, I had to overcome my fears, and I had to learn how to be myself. If you do that, you'll be happier, <laughs> you'll probably be richer too. So this was the podcast, which we targeted towards comedians, but there was really nothing funny about this, was there, Corey? No, not really. There's a lot to think about. The yeah. new year is coming. Think about the change, the overcoming, and how you can even be more of yourself. And don't forget, subscribe right now. Do it right now. Any place where you subscribe to your podcasts.